1: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. In Samantha Harvey's latest novel, Orbital, five astronauts spin through space at the edge of the Earth's atmosphere in an international space station. British, Japanese, Italian, Russian, and American, they live and work together in the low-gravity environment that is slowly atrophying their muscles changing even their heart's ability to pump blood. In return, they are given a God's eye view of the earth, where each day they observe every corner of the planet, its mountains and volcanoes, its oceans and seas, its city lights and desert darkness, and the weather that crawls across its blue-green surfaces. As they track a so-called super typhoon that is growing rapidly with no signs of slowing, they take stock of the meaning of their national divisions, the enforced separate toilets for the Russians, the differences in the culinary pastes and freeze dried foods sent from their home countries on resupply ships. But the context of their claustrophobic living and the elimination of national boundaries from the Earth's spinning face challenges what seem like innate cultural differences, suggesting an earthly citizenship with more urgent demands. They see the hand of politics scrawled across the planet, revealing the devastations of human wants and desires. But they are but a handful of watchers, doomed to look at the things in need of monumental changing. A novel that is both atmospheric and deeply realist, Orbital asks us to imagine what it would mean to step hundreds of miles outside of the ever-spinning will-to-human progress at any costs, what communities might be found in the resolve to work for others, in dreams that value all life on the planet differently, and how might that change in perspective alter the destiny of humankind. A novel best read with Gustav Holst's The Planets in the Background Orbital makes the glorious face of the planet a wonder to envision, and it calls upon us to reimagine the beauty of everyday being, from the smallest act of work to the grandest philosophy of moral goodness. Assuredly, my favorite book of 2024 so far, Orbital, will live inside me. Samantha Harvey is the author of five novels The Wilderness, All Is Song, Dear Thief, The Western Wind, and Orbital. She is also the author of a memoir, The The Shapeless Unease. Her novels have been shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction, the Guardian First Book Award, the Walter Scott Prize, and the James Tate Black Prize, and longlisted for the Man Booker Prize, among many others. She lives in Bath, England, and teaches creative writing at Bath Spa University. Welcome to Burned by Books, Samantha Harvey.
0: Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for that. A very comprehensive and mesmerizing introduction.
1: Well, I absolutely adore this novel. I'm so glad I get to talk to you about it. And it's more a problem of me having far too many questions than we'll have time to address. But I'm I'm interested just to begin. What sent you into space for your fifth novel? Was there a particular catalyst or had you always been interested in the experiences of astronauts living in space?
0: Well, I've always been interested in the experience of astronauts uh, looking down at the Earth. So when I was much younger, you know, in my, in my late teens, I would collect quotes from astronauts, of so things that they'd said about being in orbit. Um, either, or this is probably preceding the, was predating the International Space Station, so probably you know the days of Mir and even going back to the Apollo moon missions and so on their impressions of the Earth, looking back at the Earth from space. And that was always my interest, more than being in space itself, you know, but, uh, that view, that uncommon view of the Earth. Mm. And uh, I, and then I, you know, I didn't sort of ever think I would write a novel about that. And, um, But I think at some point I started to look at the sort of images of the Earth from orbit mainly from the ISS or on YouTube videos and so on, you know, and the NASA website has lots of, lots of images and the International Space Station itself has a live camera, um, which doesn't work very often, it must be, Oh no! (laughs) (laughs) but you can, in theory, you can, you can just sit 24 hours a day and watch it orbiting the Earth, you know, see their view of the Earth as they go around it.
1: I didn't Um, realise.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's, all of this is, is just there online and everything that NASA does is in the, in the public domain so you can access it. Um, I started looking at that and found myself completely uh, consumed by the beauty, the strange beauty of that view of the Earth. And then I thought, well, words are what I have, so I wonder if I can render this in words. I wonder what words can do to, to this my experience of watching the earth in this way the the euphoria i feel you know i still feel that having watched you know hundreds of hours of footage and looking at photographs or so, and so on i still feel this uh, mixture of of joy and great sadness and um great connectivity with other uh, the other inhabitants of this planet and i wanted to find a way to put that into words uh, and to put it into words in a way that wasn't didactic, that I wasn't really trying to talk about issues. I just wanted to paint in words off the earth from space. And uh, I did actually start this novel and then I, I abandoned it because I thought, you know, this isn't going to work. Who is going to care about my view of, of space when there are real people who really have been into space and really do write about it already? Um, so I, I put it aside and started writing other things, none of which I, I really uh, got on with. And then I came back to this so, somewhat by by accident. Um, I opened the document again one day and something just clicked in me. And I thought, no, this really is the novel I want to write. And I just have to make it good enough that it justifies itself. Okay. A lay person who's only looking at videos online could still have something to say about this beautiful subject matter and inspiring, awesome subject matter. So that was, um, it was a very kind of tentative start to the novel. Um, I had to really persuade myself that it was something that I had permission to do. I, suppose.
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's one of the things that I, I, I really found quite different about this novel. You, you say it, it's, you didn't want to be didactic, and I don't think it's didactic at all. It's an it's an observational novel. And in my introduction, I sort of perhaps added didacticisms to it that I felt in, in in reading it. But I never felt that was your hand gu- guiding it. Uh, you you really did want to have a, a novel of observation, of grandeur and distance, and and just the wonder of seeing these things. It's it's a book about wonder. A, um, Perhaps above all things, and it's clear that that wonder is yours, as you say, and 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 perhaps has been for a long time. But I I wonder um, if you thought at all, perhaps either worried or were excited by the fact that you would have to play with some genre expectations by going into space, and that readers of of books that that do inhabit space stations or rockets or things like that tend to be on the lookout for alien life or for technical disasters that threaten the life on board the station. Although there is a a quite nice crack that's emerging um, and encounters with other unhappy spacecraft, but orbital counters these expectations by living not in the space of speculative fiction, but of exacting realism of, of life in space. What the astronauts see and do is entirely plausible, and indeed, it mirrors the experiences of those who have been aboard the International Space Station. What were the appeals and difficulties of having a setting that brings with it so much genre baggage?
0: Yeah, it's such an interesting question. I mean, I I don't go out of my way to subvert genre, but I, I I'm also not terribly interested in the boundaries between genres. I mean, I, I think. There's a conversation to be had there, but i I think that writing is writing, and what what I wanted to do was to write something that might count, I suppose, as nature writing about space, um, that tried to grapple with the idea of space as a reality and therefore as as something that is open to realism, fictional realism because mm-hmm. we I find it really interesting that even now in the twenty first century when, been several times to the moon we've had humans in continual um orbit around the earth for 23 years now oh well wow. so, yeah I and mean, it's an it's an incredible fact that every single day for the last 23 years there there have been humans mm. um orbiting the earth and yet whenever we we write about space or we watch films about space they they tend to be Sci fi, they tend to fictionalize and, and get into exactly the territory you were talking about there aliens and sort of disaster and adversity. And, and in fact, there is this reality that's happening every single day of, of our occupation of space. And I wanted to write about that. I thought, this, why are we not writing about this? This is a, a terrain that humans have occupied for a long time. Realism, fictional realism, or, you know, never explores it, and uh, that it's that see, it's it's reality and its realism is exactly what interested me about it. Not its potential for for sci-fi or for speculation or mm. you know, for disaster. And I, and I think you're absolutely right in what you said about it being a book about wonder because I wanted this to be a book. Precisely about wonder, about rapture, about beauty. And it takes place, the, the novel takes place over one day. So 16 uh, sunrises, 16 sunsets, 16 orbits. And in that one day, nothing goes wrong. You know, it's just a day, a, a, a kind of mundane and extraordinary day orbiting the planet. That's precisely what I wanted to catch, you know, that, con- that contradiction. Um, that dissonance between the, the sort of rather humdrum nature of, of our circling the planet every day in the ISS, mm. um, and also the extraordinary fact of it, which is is uh mind blowing, really. And uh, I wanted to try and hold those two things, that dissonance, on the page at once. Um, and you're right, there is a, a nice crack <laughs> <that> <laughs> appears on the space station, and actually, that's I, I that. the space station in my novel, isn't actually the ISS. I mean, I never call it that, but of course, that's what it is. And that's what it's modeled on. And the ISS does have
1: a... Oh, it does? It, oh, oh, wow. Does.
0: It's becoming somewhat dilapidated and and it doesn't have that many years left in it. And, you know, of course, the war in Ukraine has, has hastened that difficulty difficulties of, you know, Russia and the West sharing that space. Yeah, um, yeah. So... It is on its last legs and i and I find that a very interesting uh element to it that it's both this incredibly um expensive mind blowingly technical um piece of kit that is also sort of retro <laughs> sure. um, and quite becoming quite rattly and vintage and i and I love that and I love that idea of this, uh what I sort of called space pastoral of, of of something that's already fallen in slightly into nostalgia in the in the human mm. world, that it won't be around for long and this this era that we have now of uh, of orbiting the Earth is going to pass very quickly and we're going to start going to the Moon back to the Moon and on to Mars and this rather sort of tender. Orbit. <laughs> I mean, I, I realize I'm romanticizing things here, so
1: Horrible. <laughs> no, I, I love that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, I am a novelist, so I'm an um, actor. <laughs> but this, you know, this, this, this sort of attentive um, orbit of the ISS, where it's, it's focused on the Earth, not beyond the Earth, I think. That, that's an era of collab- international collaboration and peace, which is, which is passing. And that seemed also very interesting to me
1: the I, there there is that tension between the members of your space station and this mission that's that's headed to the moon and the sense among some of the astronauts that perhaps they're sort of inhabiting this uh, this lesser atmosphere um and that, that that they should be proceeding on and pre- and and they think about what it would mean to proceed on to mars and yet at the same time they're also uh, struck by how unique their perspective is, and and what it means to be so close to Earth, and I and I like that tension you established, and I wonder how that how that came about for you.
0: Yeah, well, I wanted to uh, throw in a, a moon mission <laughs> to the novel because we are we a uh, human species is planning to go back to the moon by or well, next year, in fact, I don't know, but to to land humans on the moon again after. 50 years of not having
1: been there. What, um, um, what country is, is doing that?
0: Well, it's, it's mainly the US, so it's okay. NASA. Um,
1: oh, I should know that. I didn't know we were sending a manned mission <laughs> yeah, to yeah. moon.
0: Yeah, so uh, there have been, it's called the Artemis mission, and, and there there, uh, there are three missions in total. And the third one will, will land humans on the moon. So the Artemis 2 just sort of sends them around the back of the moon. Artemis 3 lands them on the moon. Um that they are going to be four astronauts on that mission, and so I wanted to nod to that fact that, as I said before, we are moving on in terms of space travel. we've had you we know, thirty or so years of not really well fifty years of not going to the moon um, and we've had this time of peaceful cooperation in space, and that's really. Ending. I mean, the moon missions um, that are are about to happen now were, I think, really catalyzed in in Trump's presidency because of this sort of nationalistic agenda to get to get the US back to the moon. And and I think there's something that is the space race has always been um, has always been competitive. It's a race. It's always been, but there's something now that's that's very commercial. Not very corporated. um, very corporate. And it's about, I think, colonizing space,
1: mm.
0: uh, plundering and it. Going forthwith. after
1: those rare minerals that exist and, and, and couldn't be mined.
0: That's right. Exactly. And, and, I have, and, I, and I think a lot of people have really grave misgivings about that because we've already sort of trashed the earth. And now we are setting our sights on space and we have trashed low Earth orbit. You know, it's full of space junk that we don't know what to do with. Um, so, yeah, although there is this kind of beautiful, optimistic urge to get beyond the Earth and to be sort of creatures who, who may one day be able to settle on another planet. There's also a you know, a, a sadness to that, I think, because... What will we, have we learned our lesson? What will we do to space mm. when we get there? How will we treat it? Will it be cooperative? It doesn't look like that. It looks like it's going to be competitive.
1: Yeah. I, I wonder if you might read a section for us from Orbital, Samantha, and, and so that we could get a sense of the way in which the novel looks differently at the, at the planet and its atmospheric uh, sensibilities. Would you be willing to do that?
0: Of course, yeah, so this part um I should say is from the the book is is in sixteen orbits, and this is Orbit fifteen, which is entirely humanless. It's just uh one rolling description of of uh, an entire orbit around the Earth, and in fact, all the astronauts are fast asleep at this point, so it's uh it's only um descriptive of the earth. It's just gone three in the morning on the clocks up here, down there, lightning pulses slow and dazzling from the black. Tens or hundreds of miles apart, and the satin dark turns milky with storm cloud. The equator nears. It brings a shrieking star, a huge Bethlehem light. It's not so much that they follow it as that it comes for them, a wave of dawn that washes night to the aft. And the clouds, the debris of a wrecked typhoon, are turbulent peaks of violet and peach, the hundred cymbal clang of sudden daylight. A few minutes later, they come in off the ocean where the Maldives, Sri Lanka India are ripe with mourning. The shallow shoals and sandbanks of the Gulf of Mana off to starboard are the shores of Malaysia and Indonesia, where the sand, algae, coral and phytoplankton make the water luminous with a spectrum of greens. Except now there's tumbled, broken-up storm cloud and the usually tranquil view is weary in trouble. As they ascend India's east coast, the clouds are thinning, Morning strengthens, is briefly stark, and then a haze moves in at the Bay of Bengal. The clouds wispy and numerous, and the Ganges' silt estuary opens into Bangladesh, umber plains and ochre rivers, burgundy valley of a thousand-mile ridge. The Himalayas are an everest and indiscernible blip. Everything beyond them, which caps the earth, is the rich, fresh brown of the Tibetan plateau, glacial, River run and studded with sapphire frozen lakes. Up now and diagonally across China's great mountains, the faint smudge of rust that is the extraordinary autumn bloom, Jujagua Valley, and then the Gobi Desert in seeming plainness. Except in looking closer, there are the fearless brushstrokes, seas in sand, the movement of water, and seas in brown, bolts, duck egg, mauve, lemon, and crimson and cast the arid and shades of oil spill, and makes of canyon's nacreous shells, and on it presses, the northward orbit, into the afternoon of North Korea and up above Hokkaido. Japan is a wisp trailing into a vanishing point. It was eleven orbits and sixteen hours ago that they passed it going down, and this time they skim it going up, across the arm of Russian islands that sweep along the Pacific Ridge, over the Bering Sea, Now, the land falls away like a silk. There is a feeling of climbing over the continents, climbing up and over the crest of the Earth, up and over the North Pacific in a wide, clean arc. Though their orbit proceeds in a straight line around the planet, the planet's turn makes the orbital path appear to loop up and down, north and south, and keep on north and south in deep undulations. From the rim of the Arctic Circle to the southern seas, and now, at its northernmost point, it dips again. Far off to the left is a smooth, crisp bonbon of ice that marks Alaska, a cloud-free confection of crackable white. When the cloud accrues further south, the whole of the view is a liquid swirl of ice flow and cloud. The long tail of the Alaska Peninsula, a glimpse of land, of fjord and inlet, spine of mountain range. Ice flow thinning the coast of Canada portside, not a coast at all, but a land that's been sledgehammered into random pieces. Before they came here, there used to be a sense of the other side of the world, far away and out of reach. Now they see how the continents run into each other like overgrown gardens, that Asia and Australasia are not separate at all, but are made continuous by the islands that trail between. Likewise, Russia and Alaska are nose to nose, Barely a spit of water to hold them apart. Europe runs into Asia with not a note of fanfare. Continents and countries come one after the other, and the earth feels, not small but endlessly connected, an epic poem of flowing verses. It holds no possibility of opposition. And even when the oceans come and come and come and come in a seamless reel, and there's no sense of land or anything, and every country you've ever heard of seems to have slid into the cavern of space. Even then, there's no waiting for anything else. There's nothing else and never was. When land comes again, you think, oh yes, as if you've just woken up from a captivating dream. And when ocean comes again, you think, oh yes, as if you've woken up from a dream in a dream, until you're so dream packed you can find no way out. Don't think to try, you're just floating and spinning and flying, a hundred miles deep inside a dream. The night is over there, off to the east, where the horizon is blurring. Not here yet, but they're tracking closer, the Pacific below and falling away in a warped curve, snow-dusted peaks of the Sierra Nevada. And if you looked through a zoom lens, you'd see, far off, San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego imprinted on a landmass printed on sea, coastline drawn in sharp tipped white, a greyish hue of singed shrubland, the fertile coastline, the fertile coastal plains of the Baja California, Central America's scrawny neck, then they
1: too warp away. That was lovely. Thank you so much, Samantha. So you you have a sort of meta moment in which you describe an epic poem of flowing verses as a way to think about the earth and and that's certainly what this book is and here they are spoken by a narrative voice that is not that it's not the characters as you say they're asleep and i wonder what you think about or how you think of your narrative voice and and how that narrative voice is connected to these characters and also this free-floating um, vision that allows us to, to see and understand the earth in verse rather than in, in national boundary.
0: All of my previous novels have been very much focused on a single character and have been entirely narrated by that character, whether first person or third person. I have located myself in that character's head, neatly, and dedicated myself to their consciousness. And, uh, with this novel, I really wanted to do something different, and in fact, at first, I didn't really want there to be characters at <laughs> um, all. <laughs> although I, I recognize that would have been I,
1: fascinating.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to meet a novel halfway, don't you? So I thought I, I probably do need people in, in this novel. I mean. I, you know, needs a it needs a lens. It needs a place from which the the Earth is seen, um, and a you know I th- the ISS is is a kind of hideout in space that they can look from. So I quickly realized that it it would I needed characters, but that I wanted my characters to be part of almost to feel. Yes, they are a they are they are each a consciousness, and yes, they do look at the Earth and we see things from their point of view, and we do learn. A little bit about them as, as human beings, but I wanted them to be as much part of the scenery um, mm. as the earth is, that they're all sort of equal players, in them. Mm. Uh, not more important, not less important. Um, and trying to access a voice that felt much more kind of loose and imaginatively free and not tethered to the remit of what any one human being could feasibly think or feel. To try and break out, you know, yeah. out of that uh, habit of mine as a novelist, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that that project, and it allowed me a uh, panoramic view that I think absolutely necessary to write a novel like this. And of course, ultimately, you know, a lot of those views are, are my own. But I I tried to come from a place in myself that was open and elusive and free, than just sticking to to my own view of things to try and encompass. Multiple views, multiple perspectives, multiple uh, sort of lengths of, of uh, time frames, of shrinking and expanding time. Um, yeah, so i I think it it the novel required that kind of project
1: hmm. the The members of the space station are um, American, Russian, Italian, British, and Japanese. They identify strongly with those nationalities and with the particularities of their cultures. If that weren't clear enough, they have divisions on the station, including, as I mentioned, that separate toilet and a crew area for the Russians. If we were to consider the points of tension in this meditative fiction, one would surely be the contradiction of the profound meaningfulness of national difference on the space station and the erasure of national boundaries outside the Earth's atmosphere. What was interesting about taking humans who had been raised to understand themselves in national terms and changing their context for understanding those boundaries?
0: Yeah, um, that's a very good question too. I, I think it is part of that dissonance, isn't it? That they that they are there to not just there as a particular nationality; they're there to represent their entire country, and that's particularly mm-hmm. true for the, the sort of the. Say the British astronauts. I mean, there's only ever been one British astronaut on the ISS, so he he carried the whole kind of freight of mm. national expectation with him. Um, that's that's true for for all the nationalities. I think that they are representing an entire uh, nation when they go there. Yet, as you say, they're invited in their view of the Earth to dispense with any sense of not not the. Uh, Relevance or the importance of of nationality, or the meaning of it, but the potential of it to divide, because they can't divide when they're there. I mean, in very real terms, all the different parts of the space station are entirely dependent on one another. You know, we even now, if Russia wanted to or, or the US wanted to leave the ISS, they couldn't because the you know the the Russian part is entirely dependent on the U.S. part and vice versa. Um, so it's a, as, a, as a piece of machinery, it's an invitation to question the possibility, the true possibility of division between nations, while also recognizing that national identity differences between nationalities, between cultures matter. Um, they exist, they matter, they're important. Divisive. And I, I think that the ISS sort of uh, embodies that in a rather kind of beautiful way. Whether that was ever its intention, I don't know, but the, it, it does embody that. And I wanted the novel to try to grapple with that too.
1: The, the astronauts talk a lot about their, na- what we would think of as their kind of nationalized experiences of culture. But there are these wonderful moments where there are concurrences, like when they're talking about, um, uh, a space they might be in other than the, the space station and Tie uh, refers to a kind of Japanese style house and others concur that that might be just the best place to spend time uh, And and I wonder how you decided upon what aspects of their of their national culture, you would bring into these discussions, and and how they would be meaningful both to the to the individual, but to the others who perhaps haven't shared that experience.
0: Well, I I was thinking when I wrote, you know, those those parts about uh, in, in which they they have discussions usually at meal times. They they talk about you know the food that they that they've eaten at home or TV programs or yeah you know, the whether the ISS should be sort of Furbished as a as a Japanese <laughs> mouth. Um, I was thinking about when I, I I lived in Japan for a couple of years way back, and I was with lots of different nationalities there um, teaching English, um, and a lot of our conversations would gravitate towards exactly those things. So we would talk about TV programs that we watched as children, or the the um, you know, the sweets, the candies that we had when we were growing up. And it, it was those sorts of really uh, small details about our, um, our individual past that we brought to bear, and that was where we could flag up differences but also similarities. We'd find out that we'd all watch the same thing. So I, I don't know what the nationals talk about on the ISS. Um, but they surely can't always talk about ammonia leaks and brown (laughs) replacing the water filter. I think that there's probably a lot of really uh, mundane and and detailed and and the small stuff of life that makes us tick as human beings, the things that we carry with us and I I wanted to have them talk about whether it's realistic or, or not. I don't know, but that's—I was just recalling my days of living overseas and what we talked
1: about a lot. I—I mm. I, I lived in Japan as well, and I recall yeah. those very, very <laughs> uh, conversations of, often about like breakfast foods and and television shows and and things of of the like. Uh, I'm. That's I'm I'm very interested in the fact that the Velázquez painting, Las Meninas, plays an unexpected role in in Orbital. Sean, the American astronaut, brings a postcard of the painting that was given to him by his wife, who wondered about the perspective in the painting, who's central on the canvas and who is the viewer. Point of view and centrality of viewer takes on different meaning in the space station, where the astronauts view of the Earth from a godlike perspective. View the Earth from a godlike perspective, as though they are the painters of the planet's features. How does the painting draw out the question of perspective and the power of a distant view of human e- existence?
0: Yeah, I um, I first encountered that painting when I was uh, at university, actually, and I I did philosophy at university, and w- one of our lectures was about this painting um, and about the way it had. It exploded the sense of perspective and what was possible with a painting. And and I loved it from that moment. I love it still. And I found myself writing about it in this novel. And then I thought, what am I doing? This doesn't belong in the novel at all. This is just um, self-indulgent and I'm going to cut it. So I, I cut it. And then the more the novel went on, the more I thought, no, I really want it there because it does say something about this uh, shuffling of perspective, who's looking at who, who's the subject, who's the object, um, the the whole kind of shattering of, of perspective that happens when we're in space. Um, so it seems a really kind of neat way of expressing some of those things. And also something, and this is in the book, that's not a spoiler in any way to talk about it. Um, something that's always interested me about that painting is that people talk about it in great detail and they, You'll find numbered uh, all the all the people in the painting are numbered and you know, analyze what each person is doing in the painting and mm-hmm. who is looking at who and so on. And there's this big, beautiful dog at the foreground of the painting and nobody ever acknowledges it, as if it's just kind of, you know, a coincidence that Velasquez put it there. And I think that's really interesting that mm-hmm. one creature in the painting that isn't, being looked at and isn't looking at anything or anybody, including you, the viewer, is this this very handsome dog right at the foreground. And it's sort of, I, mean, I didn't really go into this in the, in the novel, but it, it speaks to something that I am quite interested in, which is that I, I think one of humanity's problems is that we have stopped seeing ourselves as animals. Not that just that we have stopped really seeing animals, but we've stopped Counting ourselves among animals, Mm. and uh, we don't appreciate ourselves as animals as part of the animal kingdom, and therefore our responsibilities towards other animals, and also, also, you know, the uh, our own impulses as animals, which we find quite difficult to override. So that that one painting seemed to contain a whole raft of of uh, pondering for me that I wanted to put (laughs) in the novel. Um, and but largely is it yeah, that way of expressing perspective, yeah. subject, object—the way that it's all reversed and shattered—I've
1: always, ever since I was lucky enough to see the painting in the Prado, I've I've always thought of the dog as the punctum of the of the painting, and I can't stop. Mm-hmm. You know, my my perspective always goes to the dog, and so I yeah. find it interesting that that people have ignored it as though he's like a a seti or something.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how it is yeah he never he never gets or she never gets counted as a subject in the painting and i find mm. that in itself really interesting
1: oh yeah yes. yeah so just another
0: piece of furniture
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah one of the questions that uh, emerged from the novel for me was the cost of human progress or, or what you call the politics of want and what it means for astronauts to have a distance from that. That's something that we find almost impossible living on on terra firma. The politics, as you say, of growing and getting a billion extrapolations of the urge for more, that's what they begin to see when they look down. And you go on to say that the astronauts, more than anyone else, understand the cost, quote, on their rocket, whose boosters at liftoff burn the fuel of a million cars. It's a great irony that these people whose rocket added so much CO2 th- to the atmosphere have the greatest vantage on the destruction of the planet in the name of progress. And I wonder, we've been talking a lot about contradictions, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that marvelous contradiction.
0: It it does seem to be the central contradiction, doesn't it, of, uh, of progress, I guess. I mean, I you know, if the world, if, if the sort of evolution progress of the world were left to me, we would still all be living in caves and we would be occasionally and with great difficulty killing your rabbit here and there and then feeling very guilty about it. You know, we would mm. have not got anywhere. So I appreciate that I have a very, uh, in a sense, very unadventurous, very unambitious view on human progress. I kind of would like us all just to stop progressing for a while. Um, And I understand that every good thing that has come from humanity into humanity has come as a result of people who are not like me, who are adventurous and ambitious and, and want to see around the next corner and want to take risks and want to sacrifice something for the sake of getting somewhere else or something else. And I think that that's, that's the kind of, uh, central pull at the sort of heart of the human question of, of what should we do? How should we act? Should we go into space and prepare ourselves to be um, a multi-planetary species as Elon Musk would like? Or should we just try and tidy up this planet first and, and settle our affairs here before we move somewhere else? What price does the best common with, you know we we look this question all the time. and none of these questions I'm raising are ever later on you, but I think it's the pull that's at the heart of everything and and that space exploration seems really to be constantly trying to reconcile itself to this question because space at travel, as you say, is incredibly polluting. And should we be uh, ransacking? moon and mars in the way that we have the earth should we should we be doing that maybe we should i mean maybe it's just in our nature maybe, maybe this is absolutely to do with our our animal nature as a, as a creature that wants to uh that wants to colonize wants to claim territory um i don't think it's something we'll ever resolve and and in any case we will go to the moon and we will go to mars these things will happen um but i think there is this huge wall at the centre of it which is the sort of source of all of our all of our, our difficulty around what progress should look like and who it should benefit and i don't think we'll ever never resolve these questions
1: when I, when i talk to colleagues of mine in environmental science they emphasize that if the planet is to be saved, at least saved from the point of view of human habitability, that there needs to be a massive reordering of a sense of what counts as progress. Not necessarily quite to the extreme that your that, that your imagination um, might might take us, but that it reorienting what it means mm-hmm. to progress and to go away from extractability and, and colonizing and things like that. And, you know, the, the, the consequences are, are so visible already to us, and, and yet you have them visible in a different way. As, as NASA asks that the, the astronauts keep their eye on that, that super typhoon that's moving across the planet and gaining size and speed and destructive power. And it's a clear stand-in in the novel for the larger dangers of of climate change. It feels perilous and and unstoppable mm-hmm. but i I still feel like this is a hopeful novel and and I came away feeling very hopeful um and I wonder if 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 you feel that same hopefulness if you if you're right that we're not going to give up progress in that sense, um is there hopefulness to be found uh, and do you do you see the typhoon as as in a way a, a microcosm for the damage of that vision of progress?
0: I I don't know if it's a hopeful novel. It's interesting because this question comes up quite often. Some people read it as quite a pessimistic novel, and some people um, like you as a, a fairly optimistic one. And I wanted to try again to hold. Both of those positions in that sort of a, a tension, you know a, a state of suspension and tension without being uh, evasive or vague, I wanted to hold the possibility of both things at once that, that yeah, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that we're probably doomed. <laughs> there's a, there's also a lot of evidence to to suggest that we have ways out of this, that we can do better, that we can do things differently. We have means. We have the information. We have the brilliant minds. We have people who care. Lots of people who care. And I, I feel daily this, uh, this ambivalence about the question of, of whether to be hopeful, as I think a lot of people do. And I wanted yeah. to ha- just hold it all, to suspend the question, to leave it hanging there, because I mean, you know, in the novel uh, there are some passages in which I, I kind of extrapolate away from the here and now and start talking about it from a more cosmic view. Um and I I think that hope is maybe a matter of our perspective. And we the earth you know won't last forever. We won't last forever. We will just be a kind of momentary blinking light um in the in the sort of great history of of the Milky Way of the universe we're, we're nothing, and we know that um whether whether we can have hope is a is a matter of how far out you want to zoom i mean you know if you if you can't find what's in front of you' hopeful just zoom out a bit further, and there'll be something <laughs> there that's hopeful or that's sort of generative or interesting or exciting and i I wanted to use that device in the novel that uh, instead of trying to say we're all doomed or there's great hope to say just zoom in a bit, let's just zoom out a little bit. What does it look like from here? we look at it from this distance. How does it look? How does it sound? Uh, To try using that very kind of beautiful elastic form of the novel to zoom in and out and and just see what things look like from different distances and timescales. Um, and, and in that way, try to hold this question of optimism or pessimism in um, imbalance in suspension all the time, um, and I, I don't mind whether it's read as a as a pessimistic novel or an optimistic one. I think the question is out there; it's uh, it's unanswered.
1: Hmm. Well, lest we we end with. Uh with thoughts of possible doom, I'd love to know a little bit about what you're reading these days and, and whether you have any recommendations you might have for, for our listeners.
0: Yeah, well, I was thinking um, about quite recent books for this, because think you know, real off lots of marvellous things that I love and have always loved, but I was thinking about things I've read in the last year or, or so. Um, There is a a novel called Kairos by Jenny Erpenbeck, the German writer, which is a love story set in, um, set in Germany, uh, when the Berlin Wall still existed. And that it's very sort of quiet, beautiful, um, sort of quietly devastating story. Um, I really loved it. I love her work. I, I, I don't know that Kairos is her best, but I but I love the way she writes. I love her concerns, so that that would be one of my
1: recommendations. Um, I'm always drawn to stories of uh, of the age of the wall for whatever reason. I've, I find yeah. them fascinating.
0: Me too. It is such a rich uh, rich territory, and and loving Kairos the way she depicts life in the East as rich as as. Uh, Allowing people to thrive as uh, culturally diverse and rich, and it's not a, a blinkered view, but it was a view that we don't see very often. We have this idea of it as being bleak, grey, dismal. Everything is is. Um, so it was a much more partly because it's a love story and things are kind of ending in it. it it's some. Um, it feels like a much more kind of open and hopeful vision, but not. Not naive, but you know, just showed a different aspect to, to like, the East. So, uh, that so was a really thought-provoking, beautiful novel. Um, there is a a novel that came out it was last year or the year before by Alan Rossi, um, called Our Last Year. I don't know whether you've come across it, but it's, I haven't. It's really wonderful. It's a portrait of a of a marriage that is in. Uh, sort of on the rocks, and it's so beautifully observed it's it's uh you know, psychologically very interesting in seeing both the the man and the woman's point of view and the unraveling of this relationship and the ways in mm-hmm. which they try to save and, and do save it and um you know it's really uh sort of gentle but but also a really good quite like, penetrating account of what happens um when a relationship begins to break down, I thought it was really wonderful. And the other novel is one that hasn't come out yet. I think it comes out this March, and it's by a British novelist. And in fact, she was one of my students. Um,
1: oh, that's exciting.
0: Yeah. And now and again, you know, this, this happens to one of your students just writes an absolutely healthy novel. And um, it's, it's called How to Be Somebody Else, and uh, it's by an author called Miranda Pountney. And it's set in, in New York actually. And she's a British novelist, but the novelist set in New York. And it's uh it's, <laughs> I worried when I when I picked it up that it would fall into that uh terrain of sad girl novels. <laughs>
1: yeah. Is it set yeah, in I'm, Brooklyn? And That's all I need to know. <laughs> yeah, I know
0: it's it's uh, it's mainly on Manhattan, I think.
1: Oh, okay. Well but, then yeah, it's always just, the genre.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but yeah, I I I don't really um, take that will to the genre, but subverts it a little bit and does something different. And it's just so wonderfully written. It's so wonderful, and I think it deserves to do really well. I hope it will. I I am um, unfashionably I'm I'm a great fan of John Updike, and <clears> it did remind me of her writing. Does remind me of Updike's writing actually. And I I did a blurb for the book, and it, and in the blurb I I mentioned Updike, and my editor took. <laughs> took his name out of the blurb. And, oh. he's, that, he's that problematic these wow. days. But I, oh. Yeah, but I love him and I couldn't, it, you know, I couldn't give higher praise than to liken writing to his. So uh, I think it's a really exciting, brilliant new novel and I think it's out.
1: Well, John Updike was the very first author I ever heard read from from his work at Haverford College sometime in the 1980s. And, and I don't know his story of... of of uh, decline in the in the cultural zeitgeist but i will forever love his his language so this makes me want to find how to be somebody else and and enjoy it for that very reason
0: yeah and Uh, i'm very envious that you heard him read i would have loved that
1: well the the thing that i most want my listeners to do is run out to your independent bookstore and buy a copy of orbital by samantha harvey Truly one of the best things you'll read all year. And, and Samantha, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you about this beautiful novel.
0: Likewise, Chris, thank you so much for your brilliant questions.
1: Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to the brilliant Samantha Harvey for coming on the show to talk about her fifth novel, Orbital, which I would put money on to win one of the major novel prizes this year. You can find links to purchase Orbital and all of Samantha's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.